Karen Minahan and you're very welcome to my podcast, Take a Chair, Talking Theatre and Creativity, where I get the opportunity to chat to fascinating artists from all genres about their inspiration and practices. You'll hear a lot about collaboration and collective creativity, that's my term for my process of working, and I explore how these artists work with others and what they mean by the term collaboration. This final podcast in Series 1 is with Ger Fitzgibbon, former Head of Theatre and Drama Studies in UCC, and director and writer. Ger has vast knowledge and experience and gives a great insight into the theatre scene in Cork, both historical and current. As usual, the first thing I asked him to do was to introduce himself. Ger Fitzgibbon former head of drama and theatre studies in UCC, I suppose that's the simplest way of doing it, now basking in retirement and being a freelance writer and director, occasional actor even. And with that, you have a long involvement in theatre and writing work, don't you? Yeah, Um, absolutely. I think I got involved in theatre when I was a teenager and I started going up to the loft Cork Shakespearean Company, which was a great, fun place to be and kind of found some of my theatre tribe there. And then when I got into college, I was straight into involvement with the dramat, met my future wife through that. We were in the same English class together. It's very unadventurous kind of courtship. So within a year and a half or so, we were writing, we instituted, sorry, let me take a step back. A group arrived from Cambridge, a very interesting bunch of people. As students, they had been to Edinburgh. They were doing a kind of Cambridge review thing, and they were doing a couple of short plays. And they did a season of a few weeks in the old group theatre on South Main Street, run by James N. Healy. And we went down to see that. And we were really taken with it. Now, it was a fairly high-powered group. Uh, People like Howard Brenton and Snoo Wilson and various others were involved in that. We kind of looked at it, and in the fashion of all theatre folks everywhere, we thought, we could do that. In fact, we could do it better. And so we did. So, well, we did it anyway. So we instituted a kind of college review. This was largely a money-making scheme to try and fund the dramatic to go to ISDA because we had a production we wanted to take up to ISDA, which was in Belfast. That kind of got us, as a group, got us into writing. And I guess I was one of the main writers on it. And I just loved it. Explain what ISDA is, Jar, please. Oh, ISDA, Irish Student Drama Festival or Drama Association Festival, which all the colleges sent groups to. You could send one act and full-length plays and so on. But crucial in that was how much money the college gave you, how, what your annual grant was. The annual grant for the dramatic at that stage was £45, so you can imagine how far that went. I remember us arriving, we took a, a production on the strength of the money we'd made out of the review. We took a production of uh, Jean-Henri's Antigone to Belfast. We'd had a good run with it in Cork and we were pretty pleased with ourselves and we we took that up. <laughs> As we got a, arrived in Queens, we were met by Simon Callow, who was in Queens at the time, and a couple of others from the committee who looked at us with real worry and concern and sympathy and said, we've been down at the station all day waiting for your set to arrive. <laughs> so we, we we had to explain that the set was in the back of the car, <laughs> squeezed in among the five actors. You know? But that was great gas. I mean, you know, just doing all of that. And so it was really yeah, in college, I got into the whole dramatic thing in a big way and directed a number of things and a few years later, when the old Granary Theatre was opening, Sean O'Toole, who was one of the main movers behind that, had brought me on board to advise, as it were, and help. I was a young staff member at the time. And that was in the early 70s. You were in UCC at that stage, were you? In UCC, you yeah. Staff member. And you were part yeah, of the I, English department. Yeah, yeah. I was brought into kind of lecture on drama, but I was within the English department on dramatic literature and things. But I had a very strong interest in trying to bring practical drama, so to speak, into the place. There was no on-campus theatre at the time. 
the Dramat and a group of fairly senior academics, including Alice Fleischmann, Sean Lucy, Sean Otoma. They would have been the main movers. Managed to bully the college into handing over part of the old Maltings building, Maltings complex, two grain stores, basically. Uh, and convert them into a kind of workshop theatre. That was the old granary. And I became part of that kind of committee and was on the management committee of that from the word go. And then developed kind of sideline courses and workshops. And eventually we developed an MA in European drama and things like that out of that, you know, using that facility. But I also at the same time in the late 70s got involved in the setup of the Cork Theatre Company Jerry Barnes was the main mover there, and a chap called Fred Williams and Morris O'Donoghue. Initially, we did seasons in the granary, and then we rented from uh, Borge Walter. There was a little place behind their office on Grand Parade, which became the Ivernia Theatre. I was involved with Cork Theatre Company until its demise when the, when the Arts Council cut our funding in the mid-80s, 80, about 85, 86, that kind of way. But uh, looking back, we had managed to do something like 63 productions, which was kind of mad because we were doing loads of work, but not getting full value out of them, if you know what I mean. Were you directing in that as well, Jar and Rice? I was at that stage, I was chair of the board of directors in that sense, but I was also directing and writing a bit. And we set up a writer's workshop as part of it. But I was only writing fairly intermittently, to be honest. Now, we were, I was doing bits and pieces. Again, we did on the brink of the Cork 800 celebrations. We did a thing called Cork 799, which was kind of piss take of some of the more solemn aspects of the Cork 800. <laughs> One of the sketches that we did was a, a kind of committee meeting organizing uh, things for the Cork 800 and somebody announcing that they were going to organise the second coming for Cork 800. You know, it was going to be great. But then had to break the news to the committee. I'm afraid it wasn't God and it wasn't Jesus. It was going to be the Holy Ghost, <laughs> which caused big problems. A paraclete. A what? A paraclete? No, a paraclete. <laughs> and so on. Yeah, I was directing stuff with Cork Theatre Company. Uh, over the years, I had set up in the 70s, I had set up a thing called the English Graduates Drama Group. <laughs> it was kind of an invention so that we could get the granary for free. It did involve people who were either in their final year or who just qualified from the English department, mainly. And we did a few productions there, which were mad, uh, to be to be honest, a bit crazy. We did the Chakron, the Boosago one with Dan Milan in the lead. What else did we do? We did quite a decent production of The Shadow of a Gunman, which then sort of started as an English grads drama group thing and then became a Cork Theatre Company production. There was sort of a lot going on. It was nicely buzzy. But in the mid-80s, uh, sorry, this is ancient history and I don't want to bore you with it, but there was an unfortunate confluence of things in the mid-80s. The Arts Council was pressuring us. They were trying to create a shotgun wedding between ourselves and the Everyman, basically, because the Everyman had a nice big theatre and had some professional management, but they, they were an amateur company, and we were a professional company, and we were about to lose our Ivernia home, so to speak. And then in rapid succession, a number of things happened. The Everyman left the Father Matthew Hall. The shotgun wedding thing didn't work. It, it was never going to work. The Everyman were offered the palace and they took it and then realized how much of a job they had taken on. So they went, effectively, they went dark for a number of years. And in a sense, the old Everyman company never returned quite in the same way. And around the same time, we lost the Ivernia because the board, board fault of people wanted it back. So we moved temporarily. We had offices over in the Opera House. We came to an arrangement with them. But we didn't have a performance space or a rehearsal space of our own. So we were kind of stuck then in terms of what we could do and the scale of work and so on. And we kept going for a while. But we eventually, we kind of crashed really when the Arts Council slashed our funding badly in the middle of, we were just in pre-production for a, a really large scale show, which was going to tour. And so we had to decide, are we going to push ahead or are we going to cancel? 
And we decided, perhaps in a foolhardy way, to push ahead. We couldn't just walk away from a whole series of contracts with actors, musicians, venues. But that kind of broke us, really, financially. We staggered on. We had a kind of legal half-life for about a year, and then we closed. So that was that was miserable. But in the meantime, I was kind of getting things moved, or I was trying to get things moving in UCC with kind of post-grad courses in drama and theatre and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, lo and behold, there was a fire in the NMRC, which was the National Microelectronics Research Centre, which basically surrounded the granary. It was in the Maltings building. And the insurers wouldn't settle unless it was a short but very expensive event because, you know, the NMRC was, they were manufacturing microchips. It was all clean air stuff and people walking around in spacesuits. As far as I remember, the cost was $8 million, a small fire. We had the gun put to our head and we were told the NMRC was going to have to take over the granary buildings because they were going to have to separate out different bits of their process. There was a huge row and we did a kind of quite a political campaign, you might say, to force the college to find an alternative. And eventually a deal was done with the insurers, with the NMRC and with UCC that they would build an alternative to the granary, and which they did eventually. But it took some years to get all that through. So we were kind of homeless for a while and that set us back significantly. And then eventually, of course, the granary opened and that allowed us then to push ahead with bringing in undergraduate programs. And that has been going for how long now? For 15 years? Nearly 20, would you believe? We took in our first undergrads in 2001. There have been various MA programs running really since the 80s, but that was uh, the undergrad thing was the big step. I read somewhere when I was doing a bit of reading before this that you might have been a director proper rather than having an academic career as well, but you didn't think you had the choice or to be a director. And you think, like, it seems to me that you did your best in that scenario to, to be a director. What's your feeling on that now? Yeah, I think that's true. This is partly a thing of the way you're conditioned, you know, the way you're brought up. And uh, I came from a family that was almost pathologically risk averse, you might say. But it, it, it sort of wasn't quite a thinkable thought, if you know what I mean. Nobody knew what, there was no career path. Nobody knew how did you do that. I think if I had been, let's say, in UCD or in Trinity, it would have been more conceivable. But there was no professional theatre in Cork. There were one or two people who made a living out of theatre, which wasn't quite the same thing. One of the models, I guess, in my head that made me think, yeah, I can I can still make a life and do the things I want to do, were people like Dan Donovan, who was a teacher all through his life, but also was one of the main movers in the Everyman Theatre, was a director and an actor, kind of helped to run the Choral Festival, had an enormously rich input into the cultural life of the city and was at the same time a great guy. He was he was just a lovely man and was a superb teacher as well. So I kind of thought, yeah, that's a way to have a life, if you know what I mean. So that happened. But there was one guy, I mean, in our generation, there was, I think, one one guy who came into UCC and was always known as the actor, you know, because he had announced more or less from the word go, this is what he wanted to be, was an actor. That was Dermot Crowley, and he's still doing it. <laughs> he's yeah. making movies and doing television and stuff. And he was in that production of Antigone that we took up to Belfast. But he was kind of exceptional. There were loads of people with lots of interest in theatre, but the idea that you might actually go full-time and make your living out of it, that wasn't a very easily planned or, or worked out thing. I wouldn't, genuinely, I simply wouldn't have known where to start, I think. But that's a kind of lack of imagination and a lack of ambition in a way that you yeah. take the easy path. One of the questions that I plan to ask you is is about where theatre is now, where is it in Cork? And it seems to me that Cork is always interesting. I remember the Ivernia when I was in college, that was inspiring to me, going down into that little tunnel at the back. Uh, yeah. I loved that area. And there seemed like there was a, 
an excitement around theatre at that yeah, time. Yeah, there was, yeah. Cork isn't an easy place for this to be your career path. It seems to be that most of the Cork people actually leave and go to Dublin, most of the actors certainly. It's, I think it's changed a lot. I mean, there's far more, well, two things. The, the amateur theatre scene has kind of withered somewhat in the city, but the professional theatre scene and the semi-professional theatre scene has grown quite a lot. But what you begin to realise after a while is that the world is full of of actors who pay their rent by being gardeners or house painters, but see themselves as actors and are actors, you know, in rather the same way that the world is full of poets who are civil servants and teachers and traffic wardens and whatever else they are. It is to some extent, you know, the way people now talk about gender assignation, it's almost like vocational assignation that you assign yourself that identity of uh, yeah I am a theatre maker that's what I am that's what I do that's my passion and that's what I get the greatest fun out of for other reasons I kind of think it's quite important as well I mean I think the theatre as an art form is very particular and special and important. I could go on at length about that, but I won't I won't bore you with, you know, the great wind-up that you get. I mean, as you're very familiar with is, you kind of say, oh, yeah, I'm involved in theatre. And people say, oh, isn't that lovely for you? Isn't that a lovely hobby? And you want to smack them around the head, you know? <laughs> yep. You can imagine Mr. Shakespeare going back to Stratford and people saying, oh, you're still doing the old plays. Oh, yeah, aren't you great? <laughs> <laughs> there is that struggle yeah. to get people to take it as serious as you think it should be taken. I'm trying to give you a summary of what is really a much longer argument, but yeah. you know, the way people love psychoanalyzing Shakespeare's characters, or at least at one stage they did, partly through a psychiatrist friend of mine. I became interested in what Shakespeare was saying about theatre, sort of through his characters, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? That you yeah. get a little leakage, as it were, from the author through the characters. And I started to look at, this is really nerdy, but it started to look at all of the references to plays, players, actors, theatre, and so on, in Shakespeare's plays and poetry, and kind of assemble them all together. And with a few small exceptions, mainly to be found in Hamlet, they are almost all images of failure of inadequacy, of untruthfulness, of the poor actor who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, you know, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's said by an actor who is at the climactic moment of one of the biggest tragic roles that Shakespeare ever wrote. And you kind of think, what's going on? (laughs) Kind of when you add them all up, It sort of seems extraordinary. And I became fascinated by this and thinking, trying to track through his career, did this change? And I realized that kind of, in a sense, the darkest point is there in Macbeth, I think. But he finds his way out of it in The Tempest because Prospero's speech, you know, our revel is now ended and these are actors, as I foretold you, were all melted into air, into thin air, and like the baseless fabric of this vision and so on. He resolves it in that speech because he says, yeah, theatre is shadow, ephemeral, it's insubstantial, and it's exactly like the world that we live in. And that's why it works. And I think that's key to it. It's the very fact that you have a live human being in front of you and they can make mistakes and it can be inadequate, but somehow you hope there'll be a moment of truth and something that is emotionally moving or intellectually challenging. And there will be those kind of things that you will take away and treasure. But that it is the kind of the most truly human form of communication in some ways or of creating art. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) I'm convinced, sure, because it is quite theatre. That is it. And now above all times, in fact, every now it's relevant. But somehow it feels to me that I have to be reminded or that we have to be reminded. I don't want to go off on one now. You know, in the midst of a kind of a celebrity culture and a glittery, filmic, visual, heightened visual culture. 
I know. I've just written a play about this. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Here's the plug, yeah. What's this one called? Yeah. It's called Ghost Light. You know, the ghost light is kind of now a practice almost gone, but it still survives in some places. It's the practice of leaving a single light burning on the stage when the theatre is dark. Oh, yes. And it's like talking to Jack Healy about this. And he said, oh, yeah, it's like the light in front of a tabernacle. And that's true. It's to say we're still here. There's still something there. You know, I had been talking to the everyman when I wrote this earlier in the year during lockdown. And we'd been talking about doing it maybe in the autumn. But then, of course, all of that fell apart. And then Four Face Liar came along and nudged Ghost Light out of the way. But we've applied for funding to do something with it. Is that for voices as well, Char? No, but it's a kind of bizarre yoke. It's it's loosely based on a Chekhov one act, but it's basically for two actors in an empty theatre. Perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> I don't know how, how we do that, but we're going to see yeah. what we can do. I love when you say the four-faced liar nudged this out of the way. Is this metaphorical that the four-faced liar just came in on top of you and wouldn't let you go without writing it or something more practical and mundane? I had actually finished Ghost Light, which was written fairly quickly because I'd been it had been in my head for quite a long time, but then I actually got around to writing it. Ghost Light is probably about an hour and ten minutes, you know, that new new kind of length that we're all working with. I had been working with A. Jean Wilde on a collaborative thing for reasons that are too complex to go into. That sort of, it reached a stopping point. All our plans about the autumn and so on got thrown out. And then I had also been toying with Under Milkwood. I loved Under Milkwood. I mean, I, I read it, I think, while I was still in my teens, and I completely fell in love with it. And I, I always thought it was just a brilliant piece of writing but I kept thinking I'd love to do something using that kind of structure partly because of the freedom it gives and if you do a play for voices then you can kind of go anywhere it's kind of the freedom of radio drama and we are inclined to forget that you can do that in the theatre as well you go back to my old pal Mr Shakespeare and you say you know think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs of the receiving arts that beyond your imaginary forces work. You know, that kind of premise of theatrical, come with me and I'll tell you a story, is enormously powerful. So it was written for voices, but for live performance. And I was chatting to Julie Kelleher and she started telling me about this play it by ear notion that she had put together with Naomi Daly. And I kind of said, oh God, I've just, I'm just finishing writing something, which is a play for voices. Maybe I'll send you a draft of it. And I did. And she took to it straight away and said, yeah, you know, let's do that. So it went through a couple of more drafts and then was ready to go in the autumn. And it nudged it out of the way in that sense, certainly in terms of the everyman. Any discussion about ghost light was kind of then put aside. And say with the four-faced liars, in case people listening don't know that program that was on then in the Everyman in the Autumn, this was one of five readings right. yeah. Yeah. on an audio basis stream. So we did it almost as if it was, not quite as if it was a radio play, because it wasn't done in studio, it was done in the theatre, and it was live from the Everyman stage. Yeah. But we used some of the devices, as it were, of of the radio play. It seems to me that it's interesting that the fact that it's live means something as a listener to it, to all of them that were on, perhaps it's for another day, but it, it really worked from that yeah. point of view. Yeah. It fitted into that very easily for me. Uh, Emily was working on it with me as well, and she was helping direct it. And she's, she's my in-house dramaturg anyway, so... <laughs> we have a kind of standing arrangement that when I hand her the draft, the first response has to be, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then about three days later, she can tell me what's wrong with it. <laughs> and come on to one of the things again I was going to ask you about was the voice. I'm mulling around that whole idea of voice at the moment and how important it is to hear our own voices. Young Offenders has brought that to the fore. All of a sudden, Cork is so cool. We're everywhere, we're on every ad. So the four-faced liar is slap-bang in the middle of that sensibility Cork sound, Cork City sound now, because obviously I'm my, we're miles away from here, down, down yeah. West Cork. 
Yeah, that's in, it. It is interesting. I've always had a sort of love affair with the Cork accent because of its multiplicity, and um, because it seems to me no two are the same. I kind of forget how ironed out my own accent has become. A few years ago, I was in a pub over on the north side on Coburg Street with my brother. We'd been attending a removal or something, you know, Connor's there. We went in for a pint afterwards and we were sitting down quietly. And it was it was a very local pub. There was a very strong cluster of chaps who all knew each other and were slagging each other up around the counter. And we just, you know, got our drinks and went and sat down and chatted away. And then, of course, eventually somebody turned around from the counter and said, sort of, where are you from? And we got into that conversation. We're from Cork. Yeah. There was a bit of slagging about that. and then. One of one of the guys up at the counter looked looked down at us and he said, "Oh yeah, see him over there. Yeah, he used to talk like that once too. He still had the bruises to show for it." <laughs> so, and where did where in the city did yeah, you go? Friars Walk. Well, Friars Friars Walk for the first eight or nine years, and then out in Douglas in the leafy suburbs. But then education kind of pushes it out of you as well, you know, that or has a, an earning effect on your accent. And lecturing, presumably, as well. I guess, yeah. 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 You have to go for clarity. I would never have been very conscious of my family having strong Cork accents, but then that's like dogs not smelling their own smell, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was out in our local supermarket out near the lock a while ago. This definitely was in my head when I started thinking about the four-phase learner. And there were two old guys, you'd imagine I was a young guy, but there were two old guys queuing up at the checkout. And one of them turned around and looked at, looked at the other and said, hello, boy, I haven't seen you for ages. And I just thought, I haven't heard that accent since I was a child. It was pure Bellevue because Friars Walk was on the edge of Bellevue. Bellevue didn't exist when we lived there, but it was just starting to be built when we moved. But it was that accent. There's just something beautiful about it. Later on, when I was in college, there was the Palaman John Fahey, who was a wonderful mimic, wickedly accurate mimic of people. And he and I used to sit down and kind of almost trade Cork accents. <laughs> I thought it was it was just great fun exploring the different kinds of music that are within the Cork accent, you know, from the four faces themselves. Yeah. There are slight differentiations there. And then getting an actor like Jack Healy, who's from Tipperary, producing his, his wonderful Cork examiner accent, you know, yeah. the kind of... Oh, yes, they caught us on the square over whatever. We were caught on the starboard. We nearly lost the Admiral's Cup because of that. And so on. You know, it's just, I just love it. It's so rich and various. You know, it's great fun to play with. I loved that part of it as well that had the river from its source right down there. Oh, yeah. I'm big into sense of place. I, I love that. And it felt it was very much part of, of, of that piece. Where did that come yeah, from? I have no idea where that came from. I kind of realized we had reached a certain point somehow or other in the structure of the thing where it needed something completely different. And for me, the river is such a big defining character of the city. The fact that it divides and it rejoins, but then it also runs under the, all the main streets and that you feel, you know, if you put your ear to the ground, you'll hear anywhere in the city centre, you'll hear the river. You know, that sense. And then every now and again, it repossesses the marsh that the city is built on. It just comes up through the drains and says, I'm still here, lads. <laughs> so that kind of feeling for at least, yeah, I had a very strong sense that somehow the river was also, without being too grandiose, that somehow the way the river ran through and under the city was like almost like the subconscious of the inhabitants. Do you know what I mean? There was something, there was something dreamlike about that, mm. and that it kind of flowed through their brains as well. And it kind of mirrored that kind of sense of flowing through the streets as well. So the naming of the streets and all of that. So that was as much a character really in it as was yeah. the corpus liar and the individual characters in it. Yeah, as well. yeah. yeah. yeah the river get... was definitely a major character. Yeah. 
We had been talking about the Why Theatre, Why Now. You were talking earlier on there about like the Ivernia and CTC. Meridian was, was yeah, kind of doing of course, innovative yeah. things for a while. And now it seems like you have connections with lots of theatre groups that are still working in the city. Are you excited about the stuff that's happening or where would you like to see it going? Kind of there's two questions there. Are you a rugby follower? Yes. Sometimes I feel Cork is a bit like Connacht as a rugby team. We have huge spirit. We're great at good beginnings. We have people who are superbly talented, but somehow they end up playing for Leinster. (laughs) I think the fact is that it is a huge challenge for anybody to make their living out of theatre. You have to have all the strings to your bow. I'm, I'm convinced of that. It's like somebody said in New York, you go into any restaurant, you know, the guy who brings the wine is an actor. The guy who hands you the menu is an actor. They're all actors <laughs> waiting for their big moment. And it just takes a huge amount of sticking power and dedication. And I mentioned Dan Donovan, I mean, who was a teacher, but the real full-time professional people who made their living in Cork were, and this isn't answering your question, I'll come back to it, but Pat Murray, for instance, who was a designer with an international range of work, national and international, and still always was hugely loyal to Cork institutions, Cork companies. You know, people would jip him out of money and he'd go back and work for them again. He was an incredibly generous man, I think, with his talent. But you can't ask people to survive on generosity. (laughs) So it's a very tough one. I mean, I think there are great young groups coming out. That group that Liam Halem worked with, making Lex Talionis, for instance, who just came out of uh, the Cork School of Music, a lot of them. You know, they're very talented, really smart. Elsa, you know, Al Dalton and Saive Coakley who have formed their own company. You know, some of their work is really lovely. The the last one they did was superb. And there are lots of young talents like that. The difficulty is trying to create a circumstance in which they can survive. My concern would be that, a bit like happening, there's a certain deja vu about it. I was describing to you what happened when the everyman moved to the palace and they went dark for a long time because they had so much repair work to do. And at the same time, then the Auvergne closed down. And we lost audiences there. There was a very faithful everyman audience, which kind of went away, found something else to do and didn't really come back. Or Julie Keller, I think, was reconstructing that audience, you know, slowly and painfully. And the COVID thing, one of the dangers is when you intermit something like this, people find other things to do with their lives. They go off and they, they watch The Crown and they find out how to play chess. You know, they watch The Queen's Gambit and they think it's all going to be very exciting. And kind of wooing them back to come out on the winter night and put on your overcoat and come out and watch something that may or may not be brilliant, you know, is is tough. So I am concerned in that global sense about theatre. I think we have one huge advantage uh, which may sound, this may isn't meant to be sarcastic. Or I was reading something from Sonia Friedman some time ago, talking about the collapse of theatre in London. But what she was talking about was really a very different kind of theatre. She was talking about these vast multi-million pound productions in West End theatres where you pay 80 quid for the best seats, you know, this kind of thing. We're working in a very different kind of ecology here. It's fair to say we're we're used to scraping together and trying to make ends meet and trying to create something out of nothing. But you can only do that for so long and you run out of energy, you run out of stamina. And so trying to keep the faith, trying to keep that energy going and trying to trying to rebuild that audience. I think there really is a hunger there for theatre, but how long the theatre itself can be sustained in these circumstances is hard to say. I I believe passionately in it. That's easy for me to say. I'm sure there are lots of ardent churchgoers who believe passionately in the church, but they walk in and they look at the empty seats. It's a tough time, no doubt about it. And yet... There is enormous talent there. I think one of the big breakthrough things for something like Young Offenders 
is it, it gives local actors who are based locally a chance to appear on a big screen. They probably don't get huge money for it, but they get a lot of exposure and it gives them other opportunities. And the number of people making short films, that's it's brilliant. And I think more and more we need to see ourselves as one community of people making stuff, whether it's for screen or for theatre, and to support each other, so to speak, in that way. That seems to me the, the only pathway forward at the moment. I also think, though, at a governmental level, it needs a lot of thought. I think this proposal about a kind of artist dole, for one better word, support, super. They have it in France. They have it in places in Europe. And I think it's crucial. If you want to keep a cultural infrastructure in place, it's you've got to do something like this. Um, I saw that you had said that if you had a million euro in the morning, probably two million you'd probably need now, that you would have a 300-seater venue. Yeah, it's what the city doesn't have. I mean, it has, it has the Farkin Crane, but that's got such complex technical limitations in terms of location that it's, it's not easily found and accessible. It's got an image, terrible seating, the bleacher seat that all creak and groan anytime anybody moves from one buttock to another, and so on and so on. You know, it's got loads of problems. It's what happened when the old everyman closed the Father Mass. And I was at a show there relatively recently. Pat Talbot did some work there. And it was just a joy to be back in that space and remember what it felt like. The everyman is full of all sorts of atmosphere, but it's, it's got its, its own acoustic problems. And it's 650 seats, which is a lot of seats. And as you know yourself, when you're up on stage, your eye tends to wander to the empty seats. Sure. How can we make this work? For years, we've lacked forever. We have lacked a good middle-sized venue. Cat Club is lovely. There's a great atmosphere, a lovely relationship between the stage and the audience. And I I hope they survive the current crisis. But I imagine they will. You know, I can't see people letting that go. I just think to make shows viable. One of the things we discovered when we were in the Ivernia with CTC we were doing summer seasons and we did a production of Bernard Farrell's I Do Not Like the Dr. Fell, which is a great engine of a play. It's, it's not profound, but it's a fabulous little theatre machine. But it has a cast of, I think, seven or eight. We were packing out. We extended the run. We packed out again. We extended the run. We packed out again. Eventually, we did our sums and it dawned on us, no matter how many times we packed out, we were losing money on it because you just couldn't pay the wages out of that size of theatre. A 250-seater, we could have made it work. It's simple kind of economics, something that keeps... It's economics and aesthetics, actually, both, because you want something that is sufficiently intimate where there is that sense of real connection between the audience and the stage so you don't feel as if you're looking down a long telescope, you know, at something in the distance, and where the actors don't have to roar their heads off to be heard in the back row. You want intimacy, but you also want something that's viable economically, and I think that means 250 to 300 seats if you can manage it, you know. At this stage, I'd need to win the Euro Lotto, I think. (laughs) I remember talking to a friend of mine who was accompanying one of the judges for the Irish Times Theatre Awards. When I was chatting to them, they were saying that 90% of the Arts Council funding was going to Dublin. So let me make a political point. There have been a few things that have bedeviled Cork. Well, there's that, well, the famous quote from the Arts Council and somebody was talking about, I think, Red Kettle in Waterford. And she was given out, she didn't like what, their work and they said what what are people going to do for theater she said well can't they buy train tickets there is a a deal of that lurking kind of almost colonial attitude of look if they want real theater why don't they come to dublin now druid were the people who broke that way back but largely because of the work of hinton too. he was the one dublin critic who actually went down saw the work and then was prepared to write very boldly about it, how this was kind of grasping the baton from Dublin. What they were doing down there was something really special and intimate and interesting and challenging. And I think that was a, that was a big breakthrough, and it was part of that regionalization policy. But 
Cork has presented specific problems, I know, to the Arts Council. They did a report, Donkeys, years ago and decided that Cork was overseated. I love the term. We had too many seats for the available audience, so they would not countenance another venue. The fact that the venues weren't the right size for what we needed, you know, it's like having a potting shed. You need containers of different sizes for companies and audiences of different scales. You know, you may need the big house for the big event, but you also need a place that is not too intimidating for a young emerging company and where they won't be playing to vast rows of empty seats and where you can get a real sense of atmosphere and buy-in from an audience. I think it's been the big gap in the Cork Theatre ecology is that middle-sized 250-seater. Nobody has the money to be able to do that now at the moment, I think. It's been a problem in terms of the council as well, because they keep having fledgling professional companies pop up in Cork, but then they don't quite get escape velocity, you know. CTC did for a while, um, and then we fell out of favour and they dumped us. Um, Meridian did for a while, and then likewise, they dumped us. There is a problem with their thinking, which is, sorry, this is a real hobby horse. When they look at Cork and they look at applications, or they look at Waterford or wherever, they have a kind of blind spot because they look around Dublin and they see, all right, the Abbey does one kind of thing, the Gate does something different, and then you have Project and so on, and you have a whole series of smaller theatres. They don't realise that down the country, that if you set up a company, you have got to be the Abbey one week and the Gate the next week and the Project the next week. You've got to be able to bring an audience in by doing something that's fairly familiar and is likely to be popular. And then you've got to bring your audience on by offering them something that gives them a bit of challenge. And then for your own sanity and for your own art, you want to really do something extraordinary and remarkable. But you may be playing to rats and mice. And then you have to go back to your familiar stuff again. You cannot afford to be the project when you're stuck on your own in the middle of nowhere. And as far as the Arts Council is concerned, that's a big problem, I think, in their thinking. When CTC was homeless... And we were suddenly having to do a bigger scale of work. We took on, we did a John B. Keane. We had war with the Arts Council. And we had to do almost a separate audit to assure them that none of the Arts Council's precious money was going to do a John B. Keane. P.S. This was about five minutes before the Abbey rediscovered John B. Keane and started doing John B. Keane seasons when Ben Barnes was up in the Abbey. But John B. was regarded as amateur land and so had nothing to say to a modern theatre or a modern audience. It's that kind of thinking that you're struggling against a lot of the time. Now, Druid has done a fair bit to break that down. They still have a real blind spot, I think, when it comes to this. I thought one of the most shameful, small, petty decisions they made was the cat club had started... I can't remember what it was called. It was like an emergent artists or an emergent companies program where they could fund to the extent of giving people a bit of rehearsal space and giving them the venue free. They could fund and support as small new companies. And I thought it was a super initiative, great for the cat club and really good use of, you know, whatever it was, a relatively small amount of money. And they did that for one cycle as it were of work and then the funding was cut for no perceptible reason that i could see but i mean there may have been all sorts of internal reasons i don't know but that seems crass to me you know you mentioned about collaboration i wanted to talk to you a little bit about collaboration and what's that to you i'm not a great collaborator i don't think well i've i've done a number of collaborations but let's say I just take as an example, Aideen Wilde approached me a couple of years ago to contribute to, what was it, 11 and 11, you know, the musical play she did about two Jewish entertainers, and she wanted me to write lyrics for that. That was one of the, one of the best and most entertaining bits of collaboration uh, I've done, because it was working with Aideen and with John O'Brien, the, the composer, who's a great guy to work with because he's so quick and so inventive. Had you ever written lyrics before? I had. I I mean, I'd done stuff, kind of parodies and that kind of thing, you know. I love doing parodies. You think you can't do, Ger? 
<laughs> I just whip up and I'll score here. I had an hour before coffee. <laughs> anyway, I, well, we had great gas doing that. I, I absolutely loved doing that, working with Aideen and George Hanover and, and John O'Brien. John is just a, a delight to work with. This is boring, but to give you an example, we had a song which was to be based in Vienna in 1913, I think, when the two lads are working as waiters in Vienna. They wanted a song for that moment kind of thing and something that would also point out the significance of being in Vienna in 1913. And I remember John and myself looking at each other and John said, Vienna, it'll have to be waltz time. So I said, yeah, and I know what the catch line is. Boom, boom, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) It was like that, you know, he immediately started to create this piece of music so and i'd come in with lines like oh yeah it, it's 1913 we have sacker torch and cream boom boom what could possibly go wrong <laughs> that was just gas working well we're, we're in a pause at the moment i'm working with adine on another project which she came to me with earlier in the year and it's more difficult because we're, we're not in the same room she we're not even in the same city so that's kind of trickier never quite sure what i mean you know, that experience with John O'Brien was, was, I felt, a genuine collaboration. We were each bringing our own stuff to the party, as it were. But quite a lot of the time, I, I'm kind of slightly control freakish. So even if I want to give actors a lot of room to play, I will kind of, I will go away and I'll map out. I'll have a pretty strong idea as to what I want, but I will try to remain open to what they bring. And you're delighted then when you're surprised with something completely, you know, that you never thought of or didn't predict. And of course, you also have to be open to the fact that your ideas may be rubbish, you know. But that's that would be with the directorial hat on. But generally, I mean, I wouldn't be too precious about my own writing, for instance. I mean, I directed Matched, for instance, with Aideen and Jack Healy and Nick Kavanagh and... Like if if they were having problems with a line, we'd look at the script and see if it needed to be tweaked or did it just mean that they had to think again about it. I would quite often cite, <laughs> just as a warning shot, I would, the famous story about Harold Pinter when he's in rehearsal and with one of his, he's directing one of his own plays. One of the actors comes to me and says, you know, Mr. Pinter, I have, I have a real problem with this line. My character just wouldn't say that. And Pinter looked at him and said, that is a problem. My character does. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. I love working with designers and all of that. So to that extent, it is a team product. And in the design of it, would you be very clear about what you want as well? Are you? Do you have that kind of artistic vision? That would vary an awful lot. I mean, I wouldn't have it like with Four Face Liar now, simply because very early it became obvious that this was going to be an audio experience. I then kind of scrubbed from my consciousness any notion about visual design. I think if you were thinking about staging it, then you'd have to go back in there and think about that. But it would depend on the play, really. It, It would depend on the individual piece. But so much of the time... I'm not a designer, kind of in a sense. I'm, if I'm trying to be pretentious, I would say I'm a bricoleur. In other words, I'm I'm into bricolage. I get inspired by things that I find, and I will sort of try and build around that. So if you tell me we have no money for a set, I'll kind of wander around and look backstage and I say, "Look, you have a door there. That could be fun, you know." And and whereas a genuine designer, I think, starts with a blank page and creates something. Whereas I tend to gather bits around me and say, okay, what can we make out of this? I had a look at the trailers for Tenenbrae and, say, The Bed. Oh, yeah. And actually I saw Matched as well. I saw that in rehearsal, if you remember. I was linking in with you for UCC at the time. There's a very strong aesthetic in them, and which is similar, actually. There's a very definite article. There's a very definite bed or that candle. The the costumes on the people were very, very particular. One thing I, I tend to be very interested in and have strong ideas about is lighting. 
but I had a notion about matched when we were doing it, but it was Deirdre Dwyer and myself kind of really put that together. Deirdre did the design on it. We had great fun doing it. We fought over one particular thing because it was going to cost, you know, 100 quid or whatever. And that was a door because we were doing a sort of skeletal set, you know, with no walls, just hanging windows and stuff. And that was great fun. But I insisted it's a comedy. We absolutely need a door. You can't do a comedy entrance or exit without a door. It's got to be there. You've got to have something to slam, something to hide behind, something to bash in somebody's face, whatever it is. That was one where I dug in. And then she <laughs> she got her revenge by saying, OK, if, if I give you the door, you have to give me a plaster drop. I said, what's the plaster job? I don't know what this was. And it's when, the, at the end of the play, when the revolver goes off, that you don't just get a bang, you get a kind of little cascade of plaster bits from above. And I thought, oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, we, I love that. <laughs> so we did a bit of horse trading there, you know. She designed Juno when I was doing that in The Everyman as well. There was only one thing in that that I was absolutely certain of, which was, I wanted the central playing space raised up by about a foot and a half, two feet, which meant creating steps on stage. That was kind of complicated, but that was the only thing. But we looked at images and we compared notes. And I love the way Dee uses height. You know, she had the line of washing hanging way up above the set. And later on in, when she did the set for Dancing Lunacy, which wasn't my production, but, you know, she had a flying bicycle or something. Yeah. And I just love that elevation, you know. I tend to have strong ideas about lighting. If there's one phrase that lighting people use, which makes me want to reach for a revolver, it's a general wash. It seems yeah. to me the most beige thing you can do in a theatre. I love fragmented and partial lighting. I love the kind of lighting they use in dance, for instance, where you light the body in space. And I loved working with candles in Tenebrae. That was a big part of the vision of that piece was to do with the candles yeah. and the Tenebrae candles themselves. So in the bed, the, the central image came from a combination of Jack Healy and Deirdre Dwyer. And I, I thought it was super. It was making the bed a kind of stage within the stage, that yeah. sort of idea. I really liked that. I thought it added significantly to the whole thing. So I didn't have direct design input, apart from prop making. I love prop making as well. You like making masks and stuff, is it? Or yeah. what, what other props do you make? The kind of Shakespeare death mask thing oh. that we used in yes. the bed. Yeah. Um, I had great fun making that. And the box where she finds stuff, you know, the box under the bed. Um, I, of making that, making it look old and stuff like that. And, and making old manuscript, you know, the, the manuscript of the play that she burns at the end <laughs> to keep warm during the winter. This is very narcissistic. There was a real in-joke in that because I had, I had fun making the prop, you know, this, you know, making paper look old and with old print on it and hand, what looks like handwriting and things. But the text I was using was actually a thing I had written for another play. When my son Ronan was doing a play called Enter Juliet, where there's a bunch of actors kind of, I don't know, they're sort of imprisoned. They, they're they rehearsing a Shakespearean play. So he was in consultation with me about what Shakespeare play they would do. And I had had a notion for a while of doing it what I was calling a Shakespeare play, kind of doing a, a fake Shakespeare, largely made up of bits of existing plays, but using them for different purposes and out of context and with different characters and so on. <laughs> and so I wrote the Shakespeare stuff that was going to be in that. That was gas. I mean, it was far more difficult than I expected. I thought, oh, this would be a doddle. It turned out to be very difficult because he had several different scenes and I realized, oh, bloody hell, I'm going to have to make a plot here that makes sense to me anyway. It may not make sense to anybody else. It might not matter, but I'm going to have to make a plot that makes some kind of sense about people going off into the forest and disguising themselves as somebody else and people falling in love and then getting killed, getting killed by accident and getting killed by design. So the plotting end of it turned out to be enormously 
complicated. But it, it was great gas. And I, the other sneaky pleasure in doing that was knowing that there would be at most two or three people in the audience who would be sitting there. And if, for them, it would be like a time crossword puzzle. You know, it would be, why does that come? That's a line from somewhere else. <laughs> you know, that's grossly self-indulgent. But it was great fun, yeah. I think I have come to the end of my questions. Is there anything that I haven't asked you? Well, I'm, I'm still mystified by the chair question, but I, I, know. I don't know. <laughs> I consider this a writing exercise or an acting exercise. Do you have a chair that you want to tell me about? So the chair... <laughs> so the chair is... Just pick a chair and tell me about a chair. Oh, okay. All right, okay, yeah. That's what it is, yeah, yeah. Well... You know, I mean, you it actually worked because I found myself thinking about chairs and thinking about the way there's, there's nothing kind of sadder in a way than going around, let's say, a secondhand furniture shop and seeing a chair that has really, you know, the way chairs eventually, particularly old people's chairs, you know, their favorite armchair, bears the imprint of them. Not just their arse, but kind of where they put their hands and where they put the cup of coffee and where they burned a hole with the cigarette, you know, and that kind of thing. There's something kind of tragic about them. I find it, I, and I realise our house is full of chairs and I find it very hard to throw them out because <laughs> they're kind of attached to them. They're like old jumpers or something. Yeah, they bear the imprint of your existence in a very peculiar way. But we had we had one chair, which is not at all that kind of chair. It's, it's a kind of hard wooden chair, but with um, this kind of elaborate sort of pine chair, an armchair. I remember I bought it from some fellow at the side of the road and it was wrecked. And then I spent a lot of time doing it up, you know, kind of taking it apart and putting it together again and cleaning off generations of paint and bringing the wood back to itself and so on, kind of, you know, just as a a hobby and getting generally getting it fixed up but we discovered that it was a, a particular genre of chair so of kind of wooden country chair carved which was they were known as captain's chairs why i'm not quite sure but that's what they were called they kind of have have a sort of semi-circular back on them and splayed legs we had got this and we had this in our house and you know, our kids were growing up and all of that. And then we were moving house and we years, years later, we had moved house and our youngest said just casually one day. And of course, oh, that was back in the captain's house, wasn't it? And I said, what are you talking about? What captain? He said, well, the captain's house, the, the, the man who owned the last house before we did. Said, what, what captain? He said, well, it belonged to a captain, didn't it? A sea captain. I said, no. But the captain's chair was there. And clearly he had seen this thing and heard us referring to it as the captain's chair. He was small when we moved there. And so he had constructed a whole narrative that this house previously belonged to a sea captain around this chair, which I, th I just thought, that's lovely. I mean, it's kind of the way you, you construct a completely fake memory of something that yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm uh, so you did get me thinking about chairs yeah. and realizing we just have to throw some of these things out. <laughs> out. <laughs> There's a hmm? short story in the captain's chair, isn't there? I don't think so. So, Ger, I'm delighted to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time this morning. Not at all. Delightful talking to you. It's delightful talking to anybody at the moment. <laughs> Makes us feel human again. Exactly. Thanks, And thanks to you also. I'm so grateful to you for listening and delighted to receive your feedback on social media or personally. As this is the final podcast in Series 1, I'm going to take a break for a couple of weeks and hope to be back in the new year. I've lots of ideas and suggestions. See you then. Bye.